This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Several years ago, I was a guest preacher here, and at that time, preached a sermon entitled Golf Books and Thai Curry. Uh, since coming here as a, a lead pastor three years ago, more than a few of you have mentioned that sermon specifically. And uh, so I thought it would be nice to, uh, to re-preach it, but this time to preach both parts to it. Because when I was here, I had to do a condensed version of what was a two-part uh, series. So we're going to do that this week and next. It's a good topic to think about as summer's upon us. Uh, it's maybe one of the most practical topics uh, that I can preach on because so much of life is lived in this space that we'll, um, uh, we'll be thinking about. And after last week's topic, <laughs> which was death for those of you who weren't here, uh, uh, this might be a, a welcomed change of pace. Uh, to get us started, let me just read Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So God wants us to set our hearts and minds on things above. He wants us to fix our thoughts and our feelings on what's eternal. But I love watching the Masters. I love to golf. I love reading books of all kinds. And I will go out of my way to track down some really good Thai curry. I'll go out of my way to find it. So what am I supposed to do with all that if I'm supposed to set my thoughts and feelings on eternal things? Anybody ever wrestle with that? Any of you struggle with that? God, I know I'm supposed to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. So God, if I'm supposed to do that, why did you make a world full of good friends and sizzling, thick-cut bacon? <laughs> College and pro football. Wool slippers. Mm. A Florida beach in February. English breakfast tea with just a dash of honey and milk. Beautiful sunsets. I like these things. I like these things. Am I wrong to enjoy golf books and Thai curry as much as I do? So we're gonna think through that together today and next week. We're supposed to lay up treasure in heaven, but we'd also like to have a little fun down here. Should I feel guilty that our family vacationed on a beach? Should I feel bad about the amount of pleasure I get out of eating at my favorite restaurant? If I'm supposed to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus, am I supposed to enjoy this world less than I do? Let's think about these things uh, these two Sundays. We're gonna, today, for part one, we're gonna look at this four roles the material world plays in our lives. Four roles the material world plays in our lives. Material world helps us understand and enjoy God. It shows us how to live competently in God's world. 
It meets our God-defined needs and gives us experiences of God's glory and goodness. First, the material world helps us understand and enjoy God. I want you to put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes for a moment. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Use your imaginations here. Close your eyes if you need to. God made everything else. Made everything else before he made you. By the time you come along, everything else in the universe is already in place. And everything else in the universe is perfect. It's spectacular. So imagine your first conscious moment. Imagine what that would, be, would, would have been like, seeing brightly colored flowers, deep green trees, a babbling brook. Imagine what that would have been like. And then God speaks. Adam and Eve, my name is God. I made you. I made everything you'll ever see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. So you look around, take it all in. You probably have numerous thoughts racing through your mind. One of the questions you probably ask God at some point is, why is all of this here? God, why isn't it just you and me? Why is all of this here? You could have made it just you and me, living in relationship with each other. So why the rivers? Why the trees, the fruit, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals? Why all of this? What's God's answer to that question? We're going to need the rest of today and next week to really unpack that. But I think one of the things God would say is, Adam and Eve, the reason it's not just you and me is that you are going to need the physical world around you to help you know me better. You're going to need the rivers, the oceans, the animals, the sunsets, food, everything I've made is going to help you know me and help you live the life that I've given you the way I designed it to work. If it was just you and me, Adam, there's so much about me you'd never come to understand and enjoy. If it was just you and me, Eve, there's so much about me you'd never come to understand and enjoy. So, Adam, Eve, in part, I made the material world as a tutor. It's a tutor to help you understand and enjoy me in a deeper way. That idea will come to maturity as we keep looking at this. So that's the first role the material world plays. We're gonna see that it helps us to understand God. It helps us to enjoy God. Second, the material world shows us how to live competently in God's world. Let's look at a number of passages of scripture that, that serve this purpose. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. 
That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So a fruit-bearing tree nourished by a nearby stream is the imagery the biblical writer on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is using to explain something. Did you see it? A fruit-bearing tree nourished by a nearby stream is necessary for, for us to understand someone who delights in and meditates on God's word. Without the image of a fruitful tree fed by a nearby stream, you would not understand as well what results in a person's life when they delight in and meditate on God's word. Now, we might see a healthy fruit-bearing tree planted next to a crystal clear stream and contrast that with a tree whose leaves are withering as it struggles to find the water and nutrients it needs to thrive. We need that picture rooted in the physical material world. We need that picture. We need that aspect of the material world to help us understand what happens when we devote consistent time to reading, studying, and applying God's word to our lives. Let me show you another one, Proverbs 24. Eat honey, my son, for it is good. You can just stop there. (laughs) Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is like honey for you. If you find it, there is a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. Now, the book of Proverbs is essentially a classroom textbook. The subject is wisdom. And it's largely believed that the book was used to teach children and youth. So imagine your preteen or your teenager doing his or her reading assignment for the next day of school and reading these two verses. As an assignment, the teacher's encouraging the student, your student, to eat honey because it's good. I wish I would have had that assignment in school. That's the assignment, eat honey. Why? Because it's good. But the assignment doesn't end there. In the next verse, the teacher says to the effect, when you eat honey and taste its sweetness, always remember wisdom is every bit as sweet. You need to know what honey tastes like if you're going to have some idea of the pleasurableness and the benefit of wisdom. Honey helps you understand the goodness of wisdom. Without knowing what honey tastes like, you really wouldn't know the sweetness of wisdom. Another one from Proverbs. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? You feel like the the teacher here is talking to a teenager at this point, doesn't it? I mean, it, it does fit that this is a, yeah. When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. So now this teacher is using another thing of earth, part of the material world, the ant, 
to explain the importance of being diligent with our work. The ant has no boss to crack the whip, to make sure that he's doing his fair share of the work, and yet the ant is still productive. The ant's a diligent worker. Learn from the ant. Learn from this thing of earth so that you avoid poverty. Obviously, laziness isn't the only cause of it, but certainly it's one of them. In one sense, God is saying to us, I created the ant so that you would have a picture in your head of how I want you to work. I created the ant as a tutor so you understand how I want you to work. The material world helps us live according to the original blueprint for human life. It's your tutor. Let's look at another one. Uh, This is Jesus. In Matthew 6, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. You do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So Jesus is saying, look, you can learn a thing or two from birds. They don't stash away large amounts of food. And yet meal after meal, God feeds them. You have a savings account, maybe investment portfolios, and you're still riddled with worry about your future. Look to the birds. My father cares for them. What makes you think he's not going to care for you? So Jesus is using the material world, the things of earth, to help us not worry. To help us live trusting in and dependent on God and his provision for our lives. You have a fruit-bearing tree nourished by a nearby stream. It helps us see the effects of reading, studying, applying God's word to our lives. You've got the sweet taste of honey that helps us understand the pleasure of growing in wisdom. The ant helps us to know God's design for productive work. The birds feeding from meal to meal encourage us not to worry about our needs being met. The things of earth are good. You see that? The things of earth are good because they show us how to live competently in God's world. He wants us to pay attention to those things, to study them, to learn from them, to see what God is trying to tell us through them. The material world is your tutor. It's there to help you know God. It's there to help you enjoy God. It's there to help you live competently in the world he made. Third, the material world meets our God-defined needs. The only time during the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 that God says something isn't good is when he looks at Adam and sees that he doesn't have a suitable helper. Apparently a giraffe wouldn't do. So God scoured creation and couldn't find a suitable helper for him. In that moment, God doesn't say to him, Adam, I realize you're the only human being on the planet, but don't worry about it. All you need is me. Adam doesn't say to God, no problem, God, I'll be fine. 
I don't need another human being. You're all I need. God and Adam alone wouldn't do. Instead, God creates another thing of earth. He adds to the things of earth and he makes a woman and gives the woman to the man. So God uses the material world to meet a need God himself says the man has. Now make no mistake about it. God is the one meeting Adam's need, but he's using the material world to do so. God uses another human being to meet Adam's legitimate need. And when God brings Eve to Adam, how does Adam respond? Well, he celebrates over her. It's actually a poetic song of celebration. So he used the material world to meet needs he says we have, just like Adam did with Eve. We could use more poetic songs of celebration over what God has made. Could we not? It meets our God-defined needs. Fourth, material world gives us experiences of God's glory and goodness. It gives us experiences of God's glory and goodness. Several years ago, uh, my kids, uh, they hung a prism from our living room window. And apparently by that age, they had already known the significance of what this thing would do. And so as soon as it was up, they started scouring the living room floor for what? The rainbow. They're looking for the rainbow. Uh, and they located it. Now, my wife is a teacher uh, by training, and so locating it's not enough. It must include an explanation. <laughs> and so she went into the brief lecture on the uh, dispersion of light, right? The prism separates light into its constituent colors. Roy G. Biv, right? You need a prism to see what's contained within light. You need a prism to see what's contained within light, to see what light's made of. Maybe God has designed creation to be a prism. Creation disperses God's glory and goodness so that we can see and experience the constituent colors of his glory and goodness. Creation helps us understand what it means that God is glorious. Creation helps us understand what it means that God is good. Creation is a prism. We think of God's glory and goodness and we think of very amorphous words. What does that mean exactly? Well, creation's there to serve us, to help us understand what it means that God is glorious, what it means that God is good. We need creation in order to experience the glory and goodness of God. A walk on the beach, taking in a sunrise or a sunset, being soothed by the sounds of crashing waves. Is creation showing you something about God's glory and goodness? The intimacy of marital love. God created it to be a prism. It disperses his glory and goodness so that you can see and experience his glory and goodness firsthand. 
picking and devouring strawberries fresh off the vine, if they'll ever grow here. (laughs) It doesn't just meet our need for physical nourishment. That's not the only reason they exist, folks. They're pleasurable to eat by design. (laughs) Picking and eating fresh strawberries disperses God's glory and goodness so that when you bite down on that berry and the juices flow, you actually taste and see that the Lord is good. God's glory and goodness becomes less theoretical and a whole lot more tangible. The material world is a prism that helps us see and experience the constituent colors of God's glory and goodness. The question is, as you engage with the material world, do you see it that way? Do you engage with it that way? As a prism that is dispersing the glory and goodness of God. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. You picture it, he's in a dark tool shed No windows, a little crack at the top of the door. Through that crack, the sun is shining through. From where I stood, he writes, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by the beam. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of the tree outside. And beyond... 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Lewis is contrasting looking at the beam with looking along the beam. Looking at the beam of light in the tool shed is like experiencing a walk on the beach without being amazed at the God who created it. Looking along the beam of light in the tool shed is like picking and tasting strawberries and consciously reflecting on the God who made those berries and praising him for it. So if a walk on the beach and the intimacy of marital love and picking and eating strawberries all act like a prism that disperses God's glory and goodness so that his glory and goodness become less theoretical and more tangible, how should we respond to God in those moments? How should we respond to God when we're walking on the beach? When we're climbing a mountain? When we're picking and eating strawberries? When we're in our deer stands? How should we respond to God in those moments? Joe Rigney gives a personal story that models so well 
so well how we ought to approach the things of earth. He writes this. He says, my favorite dessert is pumpkin crunch cake, an autumn delight that my wife makes. It's the kind of dessert that can become a meal replacement. (laughs) Breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I'm normally a fairly open-handed person when it comes to sharing what's mine, but pumpkin crunch cake is an exception. The words, get your own, come to mind. (laughs) Now, in extolling the sweetness of the pumpkin filling or the crispiness of the topping or the crunchiness of the walnuts mingled throughout, it's possible that I could come to love the dessert more than my wife. The cake and my bride could be rivals, competing for my affection. However, sweets versus spouse is not the only option. If my enjoyment of the cake is real and deep and satisfying, and if it issues forth in praise of my wife, appreciation for her efforts, and acts of love like doing some dishes, then my love for the cake is no threat to my love for her. She wants me to enjoy the pumpkin goodness. That's why she made it. In fact, my enjoyment of the dessert serves and increases my love for her. The enjoyment of one does not cancel out the other. Instead, they overlap and mutually indwell one another. And my wife is honored as a fantastic cook and a wonderful spouse in my enjoyment of her culinary creation. Thus, it's entirely appropriate when confronted with tremendous gifts to periodically compare love for the gifts and love for the giver. It's good to be reminded that the giver, God, is ultimate. But then, once the supremacy of the giver is settled... The right and fitting response is to dive back into the pumpkin crunch cake and enjoy every last bite. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. A walk on the beach. The intimacy of marital love, picking strawberries, you name it. Give us experiences of God's glory and goodness. I hope your interaction with the material world serves those purposes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, maybe I don't know what you're thinking, but (laughs) isn't it possible for us to abuse this? It's one thing to say uh, we're meant to enjoy God's creation. But can't we take that a bit too far? And what do we do with all the multitudes of things we've made? Strawberries? We didn't really make. Pumpkin crunch cake? Well, now we're getting into different territory. 
Isn't there a way in which we can end up abusing this? Isn't there a way in which we can end up abusing the enjoyment of the things that we've made? I'm going to answer that question next week. (laughs) For now, let's remember this. The material world helps us understand and enjoy God better, shows us how to live competently in God's world, and it meets our God-defined needs. And last, it gives us experiences of God's glory and goodness. So the appropriate response, the appropriate response is to enjoy the material world and thank and praise God for it. Every part of it. Let's pray. Creator God, we live inside the world you fashioned. It's a work of creative genius. It's a world you pronounce to be very good. Give us eyes to see your fingerprints in it. I pray we would enjoy it, thoroughly enjoy it, as a gift from you, savoring its subtleties, relishing its pleasures. And as we do this, God, I pray we would always be mindful of the giver, you, God, giving thanks to you for all of it. I pray you would help us do that this week, this afternoon, as we take a walk, as we work in the garden, as we mow the lawn, as we travel. We ask these things in your name. Amen.